If you could attend any three college football games this season, what would they be? Money not an issue, travel not an issue, time not an issue. If you could pick three regular season college football games to attend this season, which games are they? There's only one rule. You can't see the same team twice. Like So, for example, if you're a Texas A&M fan, you can go see your Aggies play, but only once. You can go see them at Clemson, Bama at home, Auburn at home, but that's it. Then you're done with A&M for those three freebie games. I threw out a question kind of like this on Twitter, at High Motor Pod, where I just put two out there. Uh, similarly, I said, would you rather go to LSU at Texas or Texas A&M at Clemson? Travel not an issue, might not an issue. Small sample size, but the majority was LSU at Texas. And this question is a precursor of source to next week's episode, the Ultimate College Football Road Trip, and I'm going to have Seth Vanderteig from Mission College Football on next week's show for my annual Ultimate College Football Road Trip. That'll be a fun one. Would love if you drop by for that one as well. So the question, if you could attend any three college football regular season games this season, you must pick now. You can't hold your cards. You must pick before the season starts. Three regular season games, can't see the same team twice, got to pick now, who are you picking? My picks, LSU at Texas Week 2, Texas A&M at Georgia Week 12, Ohio State at Michigan Week 14. I agree with the Twitter poll, I think LSU-Texas was the easy one. That's a novelty game, that's a game that doesn't happen. I don't know if it's going to be a great game, I hope it will be, but Austin will be on fire that weekend. That's an easy one for me. The other two, not so much, because there are maybe... Like 8 to 10 I could probably pick from if I was actually going to do this exercise. I was either going to pick Notre Dame at Georgia or Texas A&M at Georgia. You can't go wrong with either one, but I'm going to roll the dice and hope that A&M is good this year. And this is a huge one in November Week 12. And the third one, I'm picking the game for the third one. I'm picking the game with the best chance to have a playoff spot on the line for that game. And it's either this game, Ohio State at Michigan, or the Iron Bowl, Alabama-Auburn. I'm fine with either. What are your three games? Tweet them to me at a Dowdy88 at High Motor Pod. Would love to get your thoughts. So this week on High Motor, first it's going to be SMU head coach Sonny Dykes, and then it's a man who can win you real money if you listen to him, Chase Kitty. Chase goes deep into those betting numbers, and he can help you win money on college football this season. First, Sonny Dykes. Second, Chase Kitty. Thanks for coming to the High Motor Podcast. Let's have some fun today. SMU opens the season on Saturday, August 31st, visiting Arkansas State for that second half of the home-and-home series that began in Dallas a couple years ago. And now we have Coach Sonny Dykes on the High Motor Podcast as the Mustangs get ready for camp and that 2019 season opener. Coach, how was the summer for you? Did you get a chance to uh, get away from Dallas for a little bit? Yeah, we did. Had a, had a, One of our assistant coaches got married, and so uh, took our family to Hawaii and got away for a couple of weeks. And uh, you know, just got back from a staff retreat and coaching school, so ready to crank it back up. You know, it's it's um, summer always goes faster than you want it to, but you're always you know ready to get back to work. So uh, I'm excited this year, and probably more so than I have been uh, here in the in the in the near future, just because uh, you know I like our team that we have coming back. So now you're entering year two. This is your third time as a head coach. You're entering year two, so you've done this before. Is there a difference in your comfort level heading into year two at a program yeah i mean there always is i mean year one is is always um you know painful in some ways you know just because you've got a group of young people that you know for whatever reason have a new coach and and that process of uh either the head coach you know moving on or taking another job or whatever the case may be that's sometimes is tough because you know uh you know kids choose to go to colleges, certain places, a lot of times because of the coaches. And so they have a, 
they've known him for years. They have a really close relationship with him. And then all of a sudden one day you're with this other coaching staff and, and the next day you're with a different one. And so that takes, uh, that takes a little bit of time. It's, a, it's an adjustment sometimes it can be a little bit painful, uh, to go through. Um, and, you know, and it was for us at times last year, you know, we just, you know, we're as a staff, we were trying to get to know the players and the players were trying to get to know us and, and then trying to learn a new system. And, you know, we're trying to adjust our system to fit our players. And so, you know, there's always a little bit of uncertainty and a little bit of angst. Um, and, and we dealt with some of that last year. And I think we're just in a lot better place right now. You know, I think our kids are, are uh, used to our strength and conditioning program. You know, they understand our expectations uh, for them, you know, on the field and off the field. Um, you know, I think they're much more comfortable with who we are. The relationships are there, you know, and, and I think that there's a, a trust that, that gets established. And, and I think our players trust our coaches and, uh, and I know our, our coaches trust our players. And, and I think the buy-in is much better than it was a year ago. And certainly they have a better understanding of, of our schemes, you know, whether it's offense, defense, special teams, you know, the, all the little nuances that you have, um, you know, just fundamentals and, and everything has been a better place. So, you know, we're a lot different football team right now than we were a year ago. And we feel like we're, you know, making some huge strides and progressing the right way. And, you know, I don't think any of us really know how the season's going to unfold, but we certainly feel pretty good about where we are today. So regarding that buy-in, you actually, you've talked about that a few times um, in your couple of years at SMU and other stops. You also talked about that last week at conference media day. And like I said, your third, your third job, but it's the second time taking over a program uh, where your predecessor left voluntarily. The other time your predecessor was fired. What's the difference in those situations? Does it feel different when you're the guy replacing a fired guy or replacing a guy that left voluntarily? Is there any difference when you come in? Can you tell if there's a difference in buy-in? Well, typically, I mean, I don't know that I think that varies from program to program. I think typically, you know, when you're replacing um, a, a coach that got fired, there's obviously uh, some issues in the program, you know, and, and so, uh, you know, Jeff Tepford had been the head coach at Cal and had a really, you know, Jeff was the winningest coach in, in Cal history, he had a lot of success there. And, you know, toward the end of his tenure, you know, things kind of took a turn for, for the worst, but, you know, when you when when you inherit a program where a coach got fired, typically there's a little bit more, you know, building that has to go. Something's been wrong in the program. Where when you take over one where someone's moved on, you know, more often than not, you know, there's there's some momentum in the program. And so, you know, when I took over at Louisiana Tech uh, for Derek Dooley when he went on to Tennessee, you know, there, you know, Derek had gotten better every single year while he was there. Um, you know, and, and I think the program was kind of on the right trajectory. And uh, and Chad Morris kind of did the same thing here. So, you know, we had some good players in our program. Um, we had some kids that were good kids, and, and they had a good culture. Um, it's just, uh, you know, sometimes it takes a while to get all the, the pieces put together and get them in the, uh, assembled correctly and, and get them working the right way. And, you know, we felt like at times last year, you know, we, we did not start well. We struggled really badly early, and then felt like we hit our stride in the middle of the season and played pretty well and then didn't finish particularly well. So, you know, I think the big message for us has just been, you know, consistency. Um, you know, our guys have just got to be more consistent in, in the way that they work and, you know, their approach to, to whoever we play. I think there was a little bit of circling opponents and things like that last year where, you know, we're going to get really, we're going to really get up for this game and we're not going to get up for this game. And in today's world of college football, 
and especially a place like SMU where right now, you know, we're not that much more talented than anybody we're going to play on our schedule. You have to play well. You know, you have to go out and you have to play well every week. And if you don't, you're going to lose. And so, you know, I think our players learned that lesson last year and, and uh, you know, and hopefully we, we'll take that next step this year as a group. So when you do take over a new program, do you talk to, I mean, when you're taking over Louisiana Tech, are you talking to Derek Dooley? Are you talking to, to Jeff Tedford at Cal? Are you talking to Chad Morris, you know, about the players, about the program at all? Or do you have no contact with that coach that you're that you're taking over from? Well, I mean, typically those guys are, you know, have moved on. I mean, they, they, they have the, they have a new challenge in front of them and, and and so, you know, and I think I think it's important to try to get a general sense of the program. Um you know what it's like to, to be the coach there and I think that there's some questions like that, that that at times you want to get answered because you know the the hiring process for head football coaches is really unusual and most of the time you know you're never on campus before you take a job someplace and 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 that was certainly true at Cal you know I never set foot on campus really I, I coached in a game there when I was at at Arizona as the offensive coordinator but you know you just don't know as much about a university or an opportunity or a football program maybe as as you want to or you think that you do and so all of them are a little bit different the the fortunate thing about coming to SMU was you know this is this is more or less my hometown I mean I grew up in Texas I recruited in Dallas for 20 years um you know I know and have a close personal relationship with some of the former head coaches at SMU whether it's Tom Rossley or or June Jones or Phil Bennett and, and I know I knew Chad a little bit and so I had an idea a little bit about what the program was like um, you know just because I had coached against them several times at Texas Tech and, and so anyway I, I you know I felt a little better taking this job I felt like I knew what the strengths of the program were and what the weaknesses were probably a little bit better than I did when I took the Cal job um, but every situation is different and you know I, I had a little bit of, of, of interaction with all three of those coaches when I took those jobs but you know you, you want to form your own opinions and you don't want to um, you know let somebody else's perspective maybe skew your way of thinking too much. Growing up you know with, with your dad being the profession and all that was FBS head coach always the goal for you or, or was there some point like for example when you go back to Texas Tech and you kind of settle in there for for those five or six years or however long you were there it, then does it become a goal or was it always that that you wanted to become a college football head coach? No, I mean, certainly uh, not the case when I got in the profession. You know, I think for me, I started out as a high school coach. And, and, you know, the thought was we moved around a lot when I was growing up uh, earlier in my life. And and the thought was, hey, look, I'll go to a high school. I'll find uh, a place that I really like and and want to, you know, raise my family and lay some roots down and kind of work my way up and, you know, maybe someday become the head coach. And, you know, I, I coached high school ball for a year and just kind of felt like, I spent a little more time in the classroom than I did on the football field and, and then got into junior college coaching for a couple of years. And, you know, I think your, your goals change as you progress through the ranks a little bit. I can remember being at Navarro junior college. I had a great experience here had some really good players and learned a lot about coaching. But I remember thinking, man, if I could just become a division one assistant, that'd be, you know, kind of the end all. And then, you know, I had an opportunity to go and do that and, and, you know, and then it was, you know, boy, I'd really like to be a coordinator. I think I'm ready for this. And then, you know, if you have a little success doing that, then you think, well, you know, maybe I'm ready to be a head coach. Um, you know, the interesting thing about being a head coach is there's really no way of getting prepared 
for this job. It's just, it's just a really unique job. And being a coordinator is so different just because you spend so much of your time, you know, dealing with one side of the ball. And, and more often than not, the head coach, um, you know, kind of deals with a lot of issues and problems in the program. And you don't necessarily have to deal with those as a coordinator. And so, you know, what happens is you get one of these jobs and then, and then you're just trying to keep up. I mean, there's so many things you have to do. And obviously the most important thing you do is, is hire great staff and, and then start to establish a relationship with your players. And that, that takes time. And, and that's not an easy thing to do. And it can be really tough, especially depending on where the job is and what's the city that the job is in. And, and uh, you know, is that an attractive people to come live? Can they afford to, to, to coach for you and live in that city? And, you know, you just have to start looking at all these different nuances when it comes to hiring a coaching staff and, and the recruiting base and can they recruit that area, the guys you have relationships with and decide you want to hire. So there's just a lot that goes into it, uh, just the hiring of the coaches and then, you know, putting an entire, um, you know, program, uh, you know, trying to get it up and get it ready as quickly as you have to. Uh, you know, there's a lot There's a lot that you take on pre- pretty quickly. You mentioned those steps, you know, going from a position coach and going to a coordinator and thinking about it. And a couple of those steps did come when, when you were in Lubbock at Texas Tech. And, you know, I got, I got to ask you, Coach, when that Texas Tech job opened up after, you know, either Mike Leach or, or Tommy Tuberville, was that something that you wanted? And do you know if you were considered for that job? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a couple of times where I, where I think I was probably pretty close to that job. Um, you know, there was there was one time when I tried to get it and didn't get it. There was probably another time when, when I had an opportunity to, to get involved, you know, pretty heavily and, and, and didn't. And so, you know, there's that, that's, if you have, uh, if you're in this profession for very long and if you have any kind of success, there's going to be situations like that. And, and Texas tech's not the only school that, that that's been the case in, um, you know, there's been a couple other jobs that, that I've talked to him several different times at different stops and at different points in my career. And, you know, either it wasn't the right situation at the time or it just didn't, didn't think it was the right move. And so, you know, that's not that unusual. You know, um, you know, the great thing about Texas Tech, I thought, you know, I thought they did a great job hiring Cliff and, and Cliff, you know, had some success there. And, and I think Matt Wells is really a good fit for, for that job in Lubbock. And I think he'll do, do a really good job. And, you know, for me right now in my life, you know, SMU is the, the, the place I want to be. I mean, I really, um, this has been a great move for, for me and my family. You know, as I said, I'm from, I'm from Texas and, have a lot of roots in this area and my wife's from just up the road. And so, you know, from our perspective, you know, uh, right now SMU is, is the perfect place for us. And, you know, I'm real optimistic about where this program's headed and, and excited to be a part of it. You talked about re- recruiting a couple of times here, and I know that, you know, when you were growing up, you weren't by any means a college football head coach, but you were around the game, you know, so much. What do you remember about, um, you know, pick up one program, whether that's Texas Tech when your dad was there or just college football in general? What do you remember about the sport back, I don't know, 30, 35 years ago compared to, to how you're navigating it right now? Well, I mean, it's a completely different world. I think that, you know, just um... – you know, the growth of, of the popularity of the sport, um, you know, the media coverage that's on the sport now has certainly changed. And then you look at how it's changed and, you know, you start talking about, you know, social media and, and just all the different things now that you, you have to navigate. And so I think it's become, you know, probably a little more complicated than, than it was just in terms of, you know, there's a lot of pitfalls out there for coaches. You know, there's a lot of things that, that, um, you know, can happen to, to, to people in their programs if you're not careful. And so, you know, I think that it's really changed that way. You know, I, I, 
you know, there's a lot more scrutiny, a little bit more of a, of a, we want to win immediately attitude where, you know, 30 years ago, if you hired a coach, you know, they had four five, six years to get the program right. And, and now, you know, you hire guys and, and, you know, if, if, things aren't going exactly the way some people wanted to go within two years, they might make a change. And so, you know, that puts a little more pressure on coaches to come in from the very beginning and, and succeed. And, and, um, you know, I've been places where, where that's happened. I mean, you know, you look, uh, I was fortunate to go to, to La Tech and in, you know, our second recruiting class there, we signed a bunch of junior college players and, and we got lucky on a bunch of, of guys and, and did our homework on them and researched them that, that, you know, that was really the cornerstone of our program. A lot of those JC guys, and, and we were fortunate. We had a quarterback that was a pretty good player on campus that did a lot of good things and grew with our program. And and, and kind of the same thing happened at Cal. You know, it was it was we felt like we had to start from scratch a little bit, and and you know we went one win, five wins, eight wins, and just keep getting better. And I think as as a coach, you know, you want to always improve. And, and I think that you know we were fortunate enough three consecutive years at La Tech, we got better every year. We got better. Uh, three of the four years where I was at Cal, we just improved, and and our goal here now at SMU is to get better this year. But um, but you know the 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 landscape has changed. Um, but I think at the end of the day, the kids are the same. You know these kids are going to college because they they want to get a degree, they love the game of football, and they want to have a chance to to be successful on on Saturdays when they when they play. And and so I think you know people talk about how much the kids have changed. I don't know that I agree with that. I think a, a lot of times the adults have changed more than kids. Um, but, you know, it's a different world and, and there's a lot of uh, a lot of potential pitfalls out there for coaches. How hard is it to, to let go of a program? You said back, you know, 30 or 40 years ago that they might be given a lot more time. Well, they, they were given more time. That is a fact. So when you're at, at Cal for only four years and uh, do you feel like you were still going in the right direction? And then when you're fired after 2016, can you somehow put us in your shoes to give us an idea of how hard it is to just let go of a program that you've put so much time and energy into over four years? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that um, it's very hard. I mean, because, you know, as, as head coaches, I mean, this is really our life. And, and you know, um, I, I tell people a story. I can remember I'd been at Cal for like three years, and, and I remember one day, um, you know, we didn't have anything going. There was one weekend where we didn't have plans. And I thought, well, I'm going to drive over to Home Depot and, and, you know, look for some stuff, you know, for our garage. Well, I had no idea where Home Depot was. I mean, I'd been there for three years and I drove to work and I drove home. And that was really about the extent of it. And if we had time off, then, you know, a lot of times we were traveling or doing something. And so it was, you know, you just, sometimes you, you get caught up in these things and, you know, you put your every, every waking moment of your life into these jobs and, and, you know, it's it's very rewarding when you have success, but it's a lot more painful when you don't. And so, um, you know, I think that, that you know, at Cal we did. We got we got a lot better. We improved. We fixed the academics. Uh, you know, that didn't – it certainly didn't end the way that, that I wanted it to, but, but I felt like we left the program in a lot better shape than we found it. And, and I think that's that's our job as coaches is to do that. And, and you know, I was really – of our, our players and the way those guys worked and some of the success we had and we had some big wins in our program and and uh you know won a bowl game and did some significant things and um but it's like you said i mean it is it is hard when um when things don't end up the way you want them to i think i think the thing that you realize certain places is that how important fit is you know i felt like that that maybe i wasn't the best fit at cal and cal wasn't necessarily the best fit for me 
so I felt it, it at some point when I was there, you know, I felt like, you know, it was pretty imminent that I, you know, either needed to move on or they were going to ask me to move on at some point and, and it just didn't work out, you know, the way that I wanted it to. Why did you take the Cal job? Did you think it was a good fit back in, in late, what was it, late 2012 when you went there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the really the biggest reason I took the job was because of Sandy Barber, the athletic director. Um, you know, Sandy, uh, I was fortunate enough to, to have several interviews. I think I interviewed for, for six, about five or six head coaching jobs that year. Um, and I just clicked with Sandy. I really liked her. I liked her vision for the program. You know, I think she knew she had a real clear sense of um, of where the program was and that it was going to take some time and it was going to be a long-term rebuild. It wasn't going to be something that happened overnight. And about a year into my t- uh, tenure there, Sandy got fired and, and certainly landed on her feet. She ended up at Penn State and I think since then has been the national AD of the year twice, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, she's one of the very best in the business. And really, truthfully, that's the reason I went to Cal uh, was because of her. And, and, you know, when when a year later you look up and, and that person's not there, that person that, that hired you and that person that kind of understands how you're going to try to fix the program and somebody that had a real unique understanding of what needed to get fixed, you know, then all of a sudden it was, you know, we tried, tried for a long time to hire an AD and, and, um, you know, and then once we did, it just, there wasn't a great relationship, uh, between us. And so it's, uh, you know, that's, that's part of the, the scary things about taking these jobs is sometimes the people that hire you don't end up there for very, for very long. And, and that was certainly my case at Cal, you know, the, the president that hired me, I think retired about four or five years into my tenure. And then the athletic director uh, as I said, was out about a year later, and, and um, you know, and that doesn't usually end well uh, for a head coach. With a situation like that, and I think that's kind of the only one, depending on if it happened when you were hired as an assistant coach, in terms of the person that, like you said, you looked up to was Sandy. Is there is there a natural inclination to just want to leave Cal after something like that happens? Well, I think so. I think you I think you battle a little bit what you said earlier. You know, you recruit these players, and you really like these players. Um, you care about them. You, uh, you know, you recruited them. And, and so, you know, there's a, there's a tremendous sense of loyalty to the players and, and also to the university. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that after a while that I really loved about being at Cal, um, you know, I just, you know, we just had a hard time kind of getting on the same page with, with some of the administration and what their goals were. And, and, uh, and part of the reason, you know, I got let go is because I, I entertained some other jobs, you know, after our, uh, after we had a pretty successful year, year three, I talked to some people about some potential jobs, and and um, you know, and that that doesn't help when when you're a sitting head coach, and you know, you talk to some other folks. Sometimes that doesn't sit well with the alumni, and and sometimes your your employer as well. And that's a little bit of what happened to me. Are you willing to say what those jobs were, and, and do you have any regrets on on not taking them before you were ultimately fired? Oh, it's probably not better to, to say what they were. I mean. Um, you know, it's, it's like anything else. I mean, you, you make the decisions the very best you can uh, with the information you have at the time. You know, I got a contract extension after year three at Cal and, and, and felt pretty good about, you know, about the direction of our program. And, and, you know, I was, I was surprised when I got let go. Um, you know, I think most of the time coaches know that it's kind of coming or there's been a conversation about it. And quite frankly, I had no idea. And so, um, you know, my situation there was maybe a little bit unique, uh, but but I think at the end of the day, you know, I'm better off, um, you know, where I am now, and I'm I'm someplace where I'm, like I said, a little bit better fit, and more comfortable, and 
and have a little bit better understanding of, of you know, what SMU is all about. And, you know, I have a great president that's been here 27 years, uh, the longest tenured president in, in, you know, in the country right now. Uh, you know, Gerald Turner's seen it all and been, been, been through it all here at SMU. And, and, uh, and then Rick Hart, our athletic director, has been here for a long time as well. And so, you know, there's just a lot more stability here at SMU than there was at Cal. And, and um, you know, and I just think it's just a better fit for me uh, right now. And just really excited and fortunate to be here. I want to go back to a few things that you kind of touched on in different parts uh, early in the conversation Re- regarding the, k- the kids themselves and recruiting. You've been recruiting, you know, Texas high school kids now for for quite a while. What's the difference in recruiting Texas high f- high school football, let's say now versus you know fifteen, sixteen years ago? Do you feel like you're recruiting the same type of player, the same skill set as you were back ten, twelve, fifteen years ago? Well, I think I think uh, you know I think kids now are probably a little bit further along. You know, um, with the advent of seven on seven and the popularity, and um, and, and recruiting's changed so much because of, of you know websites uh, and media that allow people to, to have access to film. You know, there used to be some kids that were a little bit of a, a secret here or a secret there that really not that many people knew about, and and those diamonds in the rough are a little bit more difficult to find now just because you know of of, of uh, resources like Huddle, where a kid can get his put his film out there, you know, can make make a highlight video, can make cut ups, put the film out there very quickly, and people can have a lot of uh, access uh, to that film very quickly. And so, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that's a little bit different uh, than it used to be. I think one the one of the biggest differences now is the recruiting calendar is so much faster than it used to be. You know, kids make decisions before their senior year. And that used to be something that was very unusual. And so as coaches, we have to, we've got to certainly keep up. And, and so now you're evaluating kids at a much younger age. You have to have, make more, more quick decisions on whether or not you're going to offer a young man a scholarship. And, and, um, and when that happens, there tends to be more, more, uh, you know, mistakes made in recruiting uh, just because, you know, you don't see how a young man may play his senior year. So, in a place like SMU, we're in a we're in a good situation because you know we're in the fastest growing city in the country in Dallas, with the number one economy in the city. Uh, we've got you know a lot of things to sell, and this is a fantastic university um, that if you get a degree from, will pay off really for the rest of your life. Uh, you know, I think we play a brand of football that kids want to come be a part of. We just had a you know we're just about to open a thirty million dollar indoor facility, so we're we're improving our facilities. So we have a lot of things going for us right now. Um, but you know, the thing that I love is, is, you know, we're able to use, the, you know, the, the thing that everybody seems to talk about and that's the transfer portal, you know, where kids might go to school, go to high school in the Dallas Fort Worth area, leave and go to another college and, you know, either graduate from that college and, and grad transfer, or they may not be, uh, you know, they may be homesick or they may want to play in front of things, friends and family, or they may not like their current situation. So, when they get in the transfer portal, we've been able to find some really good football players, um, you know, that have gone to school in Dallas. And so we think that's a huge, um, uh, huge resource for us moving forward. And some of our best players that we have in our program are going to be transfers that came from, from other institutions. And so, you know, we just feel like right now that, you know, all the pieces are kind of lining up for us to build a successful program here. 
Yeah, and one of those players, uh, Shane Bouchelle, coming over from Texas, a whole bunch of experience. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that your staff had recruited him to Cal a little bit. What does Shane bring uh, to your program, both on and off the field? Well, I think, you know, as you said, I got to know Shane a little bit uh, through the recruiting process several years ago, and I was a head coach at, at Cal. And, and then I got to see him play up close and personal. You know, he uh, he was the starting quarterback at Texas when they came to Berkeley, and you know, we had a heck of a game against those guys and were able to win the thing at the end of the game. And, you know, Shane, Shane played w- really well. Um, I was impressed with the way he threw the ball, you know, particularly I think he throws a great deep ball. But I was more impressed with, with just how he ran the team and, and how he dealt with adversity. And just, you know, you could see the leadership and you could see all the things that, that you want to see from a quarterback. I mean, you know, he was a freshman the week before and they, they you know, beat a really good Notre Dame team that came to, to Austin and, you know, I believe that was his second start uh, as a true freshman. And, and not many guys, you know, beat Notre Dame in their second start as a true freshman. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that come with, with being the quarterback at the University of Texas and being able to handle that as an 18-year-old freshman. And, and he was able to do that. And so I think that speaks a lot to his maturity. And, and um, you know, and like I said, I love the way he handled the team. And, and so I, the thing I've been most impressed with is just the, his work ethic, his maturity, uh, you know, his attitude, um, you know, I was really impressed with the way he handled, you know, losing the starting job at Texas. Um, you know, Texas, I think, decided to go a little bit different direction and they wanted the quarterback to run a little bit more. And, and Sam Ellinger, I think they felt like was a better fit than Shane was. And, you know, to, to see how he handled that, I think, tells you a lot about who he is. You know, he was the ultimate team guy, you know, rooted for Sam to do well, was always supportive on the sideline. And then, was ready when he had his opportunity. And so, you know, you go back and you look at his career, I believe he's got 19 starts. He's played in a lot of big ball games, um, you know, had played at a high level and has done nothing to, to, to show us that he's not going to do the same thing here at SMU. You know, when he got here this summer and started working out with our players, you know, he's got just a great work ethic and, you know, as a natural leader and, and just excited to see what he can do. And Shane's obviously getting a lot of attention uh, during the offseason after, after transferring over, but who is a, a player or two that fans might not know much about? Maybe we haven't you know, seen him much on the field yet, been injured, whatever, that, that you're really excited about going into camp that could have a breakout season for you guys. Well, we've, we've got a, a transfer, a kid that went through spring ball with us at the redshirt last year named Kylan Granson. And Kylan is, uh, you know, played at Rice and was, uh, was a good player at Rice. You know, I think it was their second leading receiver couple of years ago and you know he's one of those kids that came in he was about 190 pounds and you know and, and now he's about 230 pounds you know he's gotten big he's really gotten stronger um you know real impressive uh real impressive guy you know and he's going to play kind of the the hybrid tight end fullback position for us where we can have him coming out of the backfield you know we'll also split him out and, and by himself and, and let him do some things he's a really good perimeter blocker really physical um, you know, has uh, a really good understanding of, of, of the game and how to run routes and and um, and make adjustments. Um, I think he probably gets it, you know, about as well as any anybody we have. And so he's somebody that that, that guys that, that fans won't really know too much about. That I think is going to have a huge impact on our program. Um, you know, I think on the defensive side of the ball, um, you know, we've got Turner Cox, who's a, a defensive end. We went to Highland Park High School right here by our campus, and and Turner's one of those guys that, that got his feet wet a little bit last year, but had a great spring and just continues to get bigger and stronger. And 
you know, I think has a, has a motor uh, that you want to see from a defensive lineman. And, you know, I think he's going to have a big season and, and be one of those guys that, that people say, well, you know, where'd this guy come from? That is Coach Sonny Dykes entering his second season at SMU. Mustangs open, like I said, August 31st versus Arkansas State, then North Texas, uh, I believe, a week later. Hey, Coach, thanks for the time today. Really hope uh, all goes smoothly during camp for you. Thank you. Thanks for having me, and uh, appreciate appreciate being on. so good to have Chase Kitty back on the show. Chase, a couple weeks ago, you and I were talking about screenwriting, and we both kind of dipped our toes into that a little bit, and we were talking about the resources, and you said that if I had been listening to your baseball picks on your podcast, Master of None, this summer, I could also afford that Aaron Sorkin masterclass that you were doing. So I assume things have been very fruitful on the baseball front for you this summer. Yeah, they, they've been good. Uh, and I, I, we're in that period of the summer where – it's baseball starting to get unpredictable. So I, I've sort of downshifted and started doing that prep for college football, but man, that May June area, is just ripe for the picking when you, when you can establish who's who and who's good and who sucks and you know what direction you're going. It's, it's a great time to bet baseball. Yeah. How much do you pay attention to the trade deadline? Well, guys, we'll get to college football win totals here in a second, but how much do you pay attention to the MLB trade deadline with all the rumors uh, coming out when this podcast airs, we're talking a few days before the deadline, when this podcast airs, it'll be almost right at the deadline. How do you look at that? Do you even care about the rumors about who's going to go where and potentially some guy missing that night start or something like that? I don't pay a ton of attention. I, I pay attention. I think when the, there is a narrative being formed around a trade deadline or a potential trade at the deadline. And I'll give you an example of that. When you look at the twins bullpen, like everybody's just shitting all over Minnesota right now because they can't protect the lead to save their lives. Uh, and sometimes that's fun to watch like the 14, 12 game the other day. Uh, but it, I think uh, when you look at stuff like, Oh, Minnesota really needs to make a deal at the trade deadline that enables you to find value in the line that's being set because all that is incorporated when people hang numbers in Vegas. Uh, so I, I encouraged a lot of people, I think you and I even talked about it um, offline early in the season, like just bang out those Minnesota overs, you know, just, just crush Minnesota overs. They're going over the post to total all the time. Now there's an adjustment and people know their bullpen sucks. So a lot of people are betting the over. When in reality, like 10 of the last 15 games have gone under. So if you know that there's a narrative that you can manipulate and that the public is doing one thing, you can go the other direction. Yeah, I got a couple of buddies that, that dip into it. Obviously, being in Minnesota up here, all, all my friends are Twins fans, and a couple of buddies have been dipping into the, the Twins betting this year. And, and I think something like the, the taking the Twins and the over parlaying that through the first like two and a half months of the season, it hit something like 70% of the time or something silly like that. All right, let's talk college football win totals, and we're going to cover quite a bit of ground here, but there are two teams I want to ask about first. Uh, so thanks to the SMU fans who tuned into this week's show and stuck around here after Sunny Dykes. Let's stay in Dallas, and Chase, I'm seeing right now six wins on five dimes as the over-under total for SMU, which is smack in the middle of where they've been the last three years. They had five wins in 16, uh, seven wins in 2017, and then five last season. And even if you love Shane Bouchelle, and I think that we all agree that he could be a perfect fit for that offense, even if you love what they have coming back, that could be a tough challenge against a tricky schedule. Even going to, uh, Dykes just talked about we're going to Arkansas State in, in week one. That's a tough place to win historically. What's your take on SMU for six wins this season? That's a stay away from me, right? From a pure gambling standpoint, I don't want to take a position on either side of that number. 
and, and I think Vegas is actually telegraphing the same thing when you look at the price. Oftentimes, with season total bets, you have to lay heavy juice on one side of a, of a number. So, like, it, you know, when you bet a spread, you might have, like, minus the touchdown, pay 110 to win 100, right? A lot of times with season win totals, it's, like, over under 7, but the over is minus 190, and the under is plus 150, just because there's only so many ways that you can hang a number when you're talking about season win totals. You can't move a line up and down all, all over the place. Most teams are going to be in that 5 to 7 or 5 to 8 uh, space in terms of where you're going to bet them. So the juice is really important. When you look at SMU, it's minus 115 to the over and minus 115 to the under. So even Las Vegas is telling you, look, we don't really have a good feel for this. We're going to set it at six on even odds. We're just going to leave it right there. Because to your point, the last couple of seasons, it's been five wins, seven wins, five wins. This is a stay away from me. I don't really want much to do with this. Yeah, looking at their schedule again, I had mentioned earlier they get North Texas in week two. Uh, yeah, they get Texas State at home. That should be a win in, in week three. But then, like, you, you go to TCU, you go to South Florida, you get Tulsa at home, but you're also going to Houston, you're going to Memphis. I mean, there are a lot of tough games. Yeah, if a couple of those sway their direction, uh, they could be right there. Um, and I'm not much of a betting man, but I, I agree with you that I, I wouldn't be comfortable, even if SMU improves a lot. This team could improve a ton and still be a 5-7 and seven team next season. So, Chase, Cincinnati came up on Twitter a few weeks back. The Bearcats are still at six and a half wins, and that's after that's after last year's kind of turn-the-corner season that finished 11-12. and 12. And, yeah, they do lose some hogs up front on both sides of the ball, but so many guys coming back, so many running backs, uh, Ritter's back at quarterback, and I think that we both agree the talent is definitely there to hit the over on that. I think that this is going to be as talented, if not a more talented Cincinnati team than last season. So I think we need to shift the conversation to their schedule, um, as we always do with these numbers. And I see seven wins there comfortably. And I know that you said in that Twitter conversation, you also see sevens. But what's the level of comfort for Cincinnati at six and a half in the over? I would be really confident in, in the over there. And not just because I think they're going to be good this year. I think when you take a step back and you look historically at who Cincinnati has been over the last 10 or 15 years, they're an eight or nine win team most seasons. There's a couple of down years there in the last five years, sort of at the beginning of the Luke Fickle era, the end of the Tuberville era. Like that, fine. Take those back to back four and eight win season, uh, four and eight seasons out of there. Cincinnati has won eight, nine, 10 games. Most of the last 15 years, they won 11 in 2018. They won seven and 15. They won nine and 14. They won nine and 13. They won 10 and 12 and 11. Like this is a team that usually gets to eight wins. So I think six and a half feels a little soft. So, I mean, I think people are going to go over uh, and I think Vegas probably knows that. And this is, this is a little bit of a soft number. I was kind of surprised to see it that well, like you were, you know, referenced the Twitter conversation that we had and we kind of went back and forth on like yeah I think this is over yeah I think this is over I think they could end up with eight or nine wins I think even seven is kind of a conservative play I think they're probably going to beat UCF in in that early game I think UCF's probably going to be trying to retool and figure out who they're going to be this year and I think I think Cincinnati can get them and if they get that early game they're on track to go way over the six and a half number they'll hit eight or nine 
Yeah, and I, I kind of still get it, even though I'm very comfortable about them at six and a half. I kind of still get where it's coming from. Unlike I know a lot of season uh, in some of those group of five conference, I guess in any conference, you you have a lot of wins when you have an upper tier team like Cincinnati. You have a lot of games where you're looking at and you say those are auto wins. Those aren't there as much this season. Yeah, they're going to smash uh, UConn at home. Yeah, they're going to beat Tulsa at home. But I mean, a lot of those games, it's more a lot of toss up games. I mean, you get Temple at home, and I know that the Temple is transitioning, but you know, with, with uh, Rod Carey coming in, there's no real given there. Memphis on the road, South Florida on the road. I mean, even East Carolina. I mean, going down to Greenville is never an easy task. I know that the Pirates haven't been as good last year or in the last few years, but there are so many toss-up games uh, on there. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. I, I want to ask you, what is a, a win total that looks just as appetizing as Cincinnati at six and a half. I mean, the ones that you see and say, damn, those are that's an easy underplay, that's an easy overplay, but then after a deeper look, there might not be enough wins there or, or enough sure losses, like I just said, to, to get the under or the over. Any teams fit into that bucket for you? Yeah, I think the big caveat that I have for people this year is Nebraska. You look at Nebraska and the total at eight, and after how bad they started last year, you think eight wins, that's, that's a big uptick from year one to year two. I trust Scott Frost. He's a good coach. But eight, I, are they really going to get all the way to nine wins? Or uh, I'm sorry. Are they really going to get all the way to eight wins after last year? That, that seems like an easy underplay. But this feels like a trap line to me. This feels like Vegas knows something that we don't, and they're waiting for the public to go eight wins, no way. I have a rule that I've talked about before. Generally speaking, if the public is on an under or if the public is on an underdog, there's you probably want to stay away from that, right? And I feel like this is a case where the public is going to be on the under. The public's going to go, no way. Nebraska's not going to be that good after last year. They're not, they're not going to get all the way to nine wins. They're not going to get all the way to eight wins. We're staying away from that. Uh, I, I don't. I don't want anything to do with the Nebraska line, and that really goes for a lot of the big time programs. I know Nebraska isn't in the heyday of their, you know, the golden age of Nebraska football right now, but I, I'm staying away from Nebraska, and I'm staying away from all of the big schools. I don't want anything to do with Clemson, Alabama, Michigan, Ohio State. None of those. I don't care what the number is. I'm just not interested. I, I don't want to deal with the bets that Johnny Q Public is making on Alabama's over. I just don't want any part of that. Before we hopped on here and clicked record, you're we talking a little bit about bankroll management, how you kind of balance those those season-long future bets like a win totals, uh, props, playoff props, whatever, versus you know week by week. And a lot of that, I mean, you make money off of college football, and a lot of that comes um, from weekly, daily bets, and, and you're compounding those winnings in some of those cases. Like, is there a calculation with your, your futures uh, by saying, for example, if I can make this much betting weekly, so if I do a future, I need to bet this much? Give us a look into that bankroll management, as you called it. I think different pros will tell you different things. I'm kind of conservative when I bet on futures like this, when I, when I take win totals. What I want from my total bet, and this is just me personally, I want one or two bets that I think are absolute surefire things. I've never missed a future bet ever in my life because I'm just super, super conservative about it. Yeah, if people just listen to me a lot and, and like read all these off-season stuff that I write up, I'm constantly telling people to bet West Virginia because West Virginia is usually undervalued and the over almost always cashes. I'm staying far away from West Virginia this year because 
they're not going to be very good this year. So there's, there's not value where there is a lot of the time. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm looking for other programs, other schools like Cincinnati, for example, that are consistently churning out those seven, eight, nine win seasons. I don't need teams that I think are going to win the national championship. I just need a product that I really feel strongly that I know what I have. So when you, when you talk about bankroll management, what I do is if you're trying to be a pro, you have your bankroll, right? Maybe your bankroll is, let's put a number on it, $10,000. So if you have a $10,000 bankroll, maybe you want to tie up a quarter of your bankroll in future bets. You want to take two $1,000 bets and a $500 bet, and you just sit them there, and you just wait for them to cash at the end of the season, right? This is a long-term play. So you don't want to tie up a ton of your money in bets that you can't touch for three or four months, but you also want it to be a significant enough amount of money that it feels like a long-term investment. Like if you're going to buy stock in Apple, you're not going to buy one share, right? You're going to need a big time amount of money if you're going to go in on Apple or, or some of these other blue chip stocks when you're looking at the stock market. And betting season win totals are kind of the same way. If you're approaching it like a pro, you want to use maybe a fifth or a fourth of your overall bankroll, play it conservatively. You don't need to take 15 different tickets on 15 different teams. Some people do that. I'm not really into that. I think it's unnecessary. Two or three really strong bets, extremely high rate of success, good return, and then just get out of there. You know, that's, that's how you can, if you do it correctly, it can cover any potential losses you might take over the course of the regular season just by having a conservative approach up front. What is your single, and maybe this is, is a season-long uh, or a playoff prop or whatever, but what is your single favorite college football bet right now? Again, anything, a win total playoff props, if you're looking at early week one lines, and some of the rivalry uh, lines are out, but what is one favorite that you just feel really damn good about right now? I'll give you a couple, and they're both win totals right now. I love the over on Oklahoma State's win total, just like Cincinnati, six and a half. Oklahoma State, super, super consistent team. They've only had one losing season, and that was Mike Gundy's first season. You know, under Gundy, they've only had one losing season, and that was 15 years ago. So they're usually cranking out those eight and four, nine and three type seasons. Last year, they were kind of a 500 team, but I think they're going to bounce back. I, I think that's sort of a blip on the radar i don't think that's a trend uh and the number six and a half it's six and a half and you got to pay 150 to win 100 i'm probably going to lay a pretty good amount of money on that because i can't imagine them not getting to seven and five when you consider like 13 of the last 15 years mike gundy's team has gone seven and five and the final element to that is when you look at the big 12 there's a lot of turnover there in the middle of the conference this year like i West Virginia, I don't think it's going to be very good. Kansas usually isn't very good. I think Kansas State is going to, you know, not be very good in Chris Kleiman's first year. I think it's going to get him a, it's going to take a couple of years for him to sort of get rolling there in Manhattan. Uh, so I think there's a few. We were talking about the American and how there's not a lot of easy wins there for Cincinnati and the American. I think there's some easy wins for Oklahoma State in the Big 12 this year. And then you add in the fact that they're out of conference is Oregon State, McNeese, and Tulsa. I don't see how they can't get to seven wins. It doesn't seem possible. And considering the price, I think you got to lay heavy on that. The other one is Purdue. 
Purdue, I don't understand this at all. I think it's a program that's trending in the right direction. But, like, like Andrew, what do you think their, their win total is for this season? Like, wh- where would you peg them? I haven't actually looked at this. I would, given the the open nature of the Big Ten West, I'd put them at God, five and a half or six? Seven and a half. No. <laughs> That's a hard pass. Yeah, exactly. Like, how how are they going to get to seven and a half? Well, and that kind of goes into that kind of goes in. It's a perfect. I'm not sure if you planned that, but that's a perfect segue for for Oklahoma State and and Purdue. I think that there are so many toss up games in there. I mean, going back and looking at Oklahoma State's schedule, yeah, even if they um, beat Oregon State, uh, McNeese State, and Tulsa, and just to get to what was the number six and a half you said on Oklahoma State. Six and a half for Oklahoma State. There yeah. are so many of those toss games. Purdue They're... is expected to more. Purdue is expected to win more games than Oklahoma State this year, according to Las Vegas. Right, and Oklahoma State is not going to drop every single toss-up game. That just doesn't happen in college football. It doesn't no. happen with a consistent, a consistent program like Oklahoma State. Like they're not going to lose. For example, they go to Iowa State. They have Baylor at home, and then we'll take one more TCU at home. They're not going to lose all of those games. They might not win all of those games, but Oklahoma State is not going to lose every single one of those games. And I think it's kind of similar with Purdue in the Big Ten West. Yeah, there there are a lot of wild cards in the Big Ten West. We don't know if Wisconsin's going to bounce back well. We don't know if Minnesota's going to take the next big step. We don't know how good Nebraska's actually going to be. We don't know if Iowa's going to be that seven win team or that ten win team. But they're not going to they're not going to win every single one of those games, and they're probably not going to lose every single one of those games. Those are a lot of toss up games to get to that high of a number. I'd say it's just confusing to me how I, I, I just can't see Purdue getting to eight and four. I really can't. So I'm a big fan of the under on Purdue. I just think that line has been set a little too high. Uh, and I think part of it is Purdue's gotten some pretty high profile buzz in the last couple of off seasons. You know, Scott Van Pelt and Stanford Steve do a big segment on win totals every summer in the last two years. Uh, Stanford Steve has really pushed the Purdue over heavily, but that's because the number's been like two, right? And that is good value at two. At seven and a half, it's way too high. So I, I feel like, yes, this is a program that's trending in the right direction, and yes, there are big-name people that have been betting the over for the last couple of years with the Boilermakers, but seven and a half is just too high of a jump. Hey, Chase, last thing for you here is another thing we had talked about offline. Phil Steele had put out, I think it was like his five best playoff dark horse odds or something like that. And for those of you who didn't see it, he had Utah number one at 75-1. to And this is to win the college football playoff national championship game. This isn't just to make the playoffs. We had Utah at one, 75-1. Number two was Oklahoma, 14-1. Number three was TCU, 250-1. Four was Miami, 60-1. Five to LSU, twenty-five to one, and he's obviously ranking this by value here. But Chase, let's let's be realistic here. Utah is not winning the national champion, and I am so high on Utah right now. I think that this is the season where they actually take that next step that everyone's been waiting for them to take. Love Tyler Huntley, love what they're doing, but Utah is not winning the national championship game. Oklahoma could. I don't think they will, but they could. Are you just throwing money away when you're putting in $10 or $50 on Utah at 75 to 1? Yeah, absolutely. Value bets are the most overrated thing in sports. It's, it's great that you can find a place sort of down ballot where you feel like the odds don't match up with the potential. But it doesn't matter if you're getting Utah at 75 to 1, 100 to 1, or 1,000 to 1. They're not winning the national championship, right? So 
I don't know why you would put even five or ten dollars on it. Like Vegas wants you to put five or ten dollars on Utah to win the national championship because it's not going to happen. You're giving them free money. You know, this year especially, in the last couple of years, there's only like three or four teams that can win the national championship. So why you would ever go that far down the list? Yeah, I could almost understand like, yeah, let me look at Florida's odds. Let me look at, you know, a, well, like a, LSU, a brand I think, name. I think LSU, team. it makes a lot of sense at five. I would put them way above it. I don't, I don't think LSU's going to win the national championship game, but let's be honest. Yeah, they lost a lot of talent, lost Greedy Williams and all those guys, but I mean, LSU can, they didn't look great against Alabama last year, but it wouldn't be stunning if they were to beat an Alabama this year. It'd be far less stunning than Utah. Utah could win the Pac-12. I mean, the, the, the preseason media pick to win the Pac-12, yeah, it was extremely close, but Utah, you're not beating Alabama. You're not beating Clemson. It's just not happening. Yeah, I, at least with LSU, I know what it would look like, right? Like, I can envision it even if I don't think it's going to happen. It's not going to happen with Utah. Uh, and, you know, by Vegas's own number, Utah is set to win eight and a half or nine games, depending on the, the book you look at. So we, we know they're going to have a good year, but the national championship, come on. I don't know. Maybe they'll just be the first three-loss team to, to make the college football playoff. That could be interesting. All right, you'll hear Chase often this football season on the High Motor Podcast, so drop by this season to get his picks, to get uh, updates on his futures and all stuff like that. He'll be making the right college football calls so that you too can afford that Aaron Sorkin master class. Hey, Chase, always a pleasure. Uh, be well, my friend. You too, man. Looking forward to the season. I saw a friend today. It had been a while. And we forgot each other's name. But it didn't matter cause deep inside The feeling still remained the same We talked of knowing one before you met And how you feel more than you see And other worlds that lie in spaces